A glorious Easter morning to everybody. Happy Easter. He is risen. He is risen indeed. Glory be to God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Jesus Christ is risen. Hallelujah. One of the most awesome, awesome privileges we pastors have is to be able to share and proclaim that big, the biggest news ever on Easter morning. Glory be to God. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you this morning in awe, complete, utter awe, jaw-dropping, marveling awe at your glorious graces in the person and work of Jesus Christ. We know that the same power that raised Christ from the dead meets us every morning with new mercies to raise us up. Meet us now in resurrection power as your word is proclaimed through Jesus Christ our Lord who is risen and all God's people said, Amen. Amen. I'll share scripture this morning from the Gospel of John chapter 20. I'm going to read as I go through the text. First, I want to talk about how dark it gets. You know, when I lived in Seattle, I lived in town for several years, four and a half years. And you know, in the city, it never really gets totally dark because there's always some ambient light around. When you move to the country, where we've lived the last 12 years, when it's dark, it's dark. You don't see anything. Sometimes you can't see your, foot, your, your hand in front of your face. When I went hiking and camping in the Wallawas, with some of my former university colleagues in 2006 in Eastern Oregon, Western Oregon, Eastern Oregon, same thing. When it was dark there, it was dark. That's how Mary starts out in John chapter 20. Easter starts in the dark. She gets up and early, up and at him, and she goes out into the darkest darkness. I'm imagining the country darkness. No ambient light, just moving out toward the tomb. I love that that's where the heart of our faith begins, in the darkest darkness. Now, for some, Easter tide, Easter time, is a delight. Many of us, you know, it's it's Handel's Messiah, peanut butter eggs, uh, ham, <laughs> hyacinths, and a lot of laughs. <laughs> and resurrection, you know, in so many ways and forms. For others, like many holidays, for others of us, it's it's not so hard. It's not so great. It's hard. It's, um, it's uh, you know, hard family stuff. It's um, stuff where you get triggered from the pain of past hurts that the holidays remind you of. Maybe the memories of someone who, who, is, who has passed. And that's how... A lot of holidays are for people, including Easter. So whether this holiday finds you in a place of joy, like many of us, or like many others, in a place of darkness, he is risen. Easter is good news, best possible news, because on the other side of Mary's walk in the dark, she finds something, someone who changes everything, everything. She saw the stone had been removed from the entrance. John chapter 20, verse 1b. Now, we're not 
told exactly what her emotions are here. We get a clear picture by what uh, she, what the verbs tell us. She saw and she ran. Again, the text, John chapter 20, verse 1. Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. So she came running. She ran. This is how the day of cosmic victory starts. How about it? The first witness to it runs, runs away. But she doesn't just run away. She also runs to. Verse 2. So she came running to Simon, Peter, and the other disciple, the one Jesus loved, probably the writer of the Gospel of John. That's how he, how he refers to himself. And she said, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they have put him. So we'll stop there for a second and just flag that. Something powerful there that we ought not miss. She runs from the greatest news of all history because she doesn't quite understand it, which I think is wonderful because it shows you how human and, and the Gospels have the smack of reality. These are not fairy tales. These are about real people dealing with a wild, mind-blowing, paradigm-blasting event, right? So that smacks of realism that gives the Gospels credibility. So she runs from, but she also runs to. And who does she run to? She runs to her colleagues. It's a big clue for the Christian life, by the way. Who do you run to when you have questions about your faith? Who do you run to when your faith falters or when you struggle? I hope you have someone to run to when you're blown away or not sure what to do in a situation, what to think about a situation, not sure what God is up to. Who do you sprint to in your confusion and your struggle? Who do you quick dial on the phone or who do you have on speed dial? I hope you have somebody. Mary had Peter and John. I guarantee you that's what God wants for us, to have our, our friends, family who we can go to when we don't get what's going on. She bolts to her colleagues, those who had been with Jesus, and to them, she gives the news. And it's, it's very honest news. She, at gut level, says, Jesus is gone. Uh, must have been grave robbers. Little sort of a Debbie Downer there. She's just like us. You could see we would all feel that way. Again, that has the smack of humanity. If, if we were struggling with what's going on, you know, you wouldn't necessarily think right away resurrection. You would think someone took him. She doesn't say Jesus is risen. She says Jesus is stolen. So, they all sprint back with her into her spiritual crisis together. I love that image of the early church. That is church, by the way. Come with me in my spiritual crisis, and we'll all do it together. That's what we want to be as the people of God. Got a question? Got a struggle? Invite others into it. Your pastor, your staff, your colleagues, your friends. This is a safe space to struggle. Mary does this. So off they go. Peter and the other disciple, John, probably started for the tomb. Both were running. This is starting in verse 3 and verse 4. Both were running, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. He bent over and looked into all the strips of linen lying there, but did not go in. Then Simon Peter came along behind him and went straight into the tomb. He saw the strips of linen lying there, as well as the cloth that had been wrapped around Jesus' head. The cloth was still lying in its place, separate from the linen. Finally, the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went inside. He saw and believed. 
they still did not understand from Scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to where they were staying. So here's the data, the evidence. Here are the strips of linen and cloth, verses 6 and 7. John tells us he believes. He doesn't say his name, but we know it's probably him. We were saying the one that Jesus loved. He got there first. He says he saw and believed based on the evidence. So there seems to be a distinction there he's making it because parenthetically then he says um, they still do not understand that this is from the scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. So it wasn't based on the, the um, biblical uh, prophecies and such and the teachings. It was just based on their evidence right in front of their faces, right in front of John. That's why he saw. That's why he believed because he saw, which is interesting. We have that elsewhere. Um, Luke pays a lot of attention to details. And again, another thing that, that smacks of realism of the Bible is that people pay attention to the evidence. There's evidence. It's not just a fairy tale. There's strips of linen cloth. There's details of the stories, etc., etc. We don't hear, though, exactly what Peter and Mary think. Except one verse later, we see Mary crying. Now Mary stood outside the tomb crying, verse 11. As she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb. She saw two angels in white, seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head and the other at the foot. They asked her, woman, why are you crying? Gotta love her guts, he answered, verse 13b. They have taken my Lord away, she said, and I don't know where they put him. They have put him. At this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not realize that it was Jesus. Notice, Jesus just suddenly shows up. Suddenly, he's just there. Pure grace. He asked her, woman, why are you crying? Verse 15. Who is it you are looking for? This is the second time she's been asked a question. Notice that both times she is asked the question. She is engaged. Isn't it powerful that in our Christian faith, we are not left to fend for ourselves and to figure everything out. We get help. We get questions. Angels, the Lord himself, God shows up in our losses and speaks into our tombs, our tears, our questions. And then, then, verse 16, Jesus said to her, Mary, Miriam, the Greek, the God who meets us at the tomb knows our name. It's not just the Aristotelian unmoved mover, the God of the Stoic philosophers, the God way up there watching from a distance, deistic, the watchmaker uninvolved. God knows your name. The risen Lord calls Mary by name. At that moment, verse 16b, she turned toward him. The verse says, she turned toward him. Dale Bruner describes that moment this way. A second before this turn, there is a woman in the deepest human despair, in the agonizing presence of inconquerable death, a second after the beginning of this turn, there is a woman in the deepest possible human elation, 
in the presence of the death-conquering central figure of all of history. The rush that must have come over this woman in her two-second turn is unimaginable. Can you imagine? She's the first person ever to experience the personal presence of the risen Lord. When she turned to him at this moment, human history took a turn. I love that Brunner says that. When she turned to him at this moment, human history took a turn to a responsible hope for the vincibility of death and so to the conquest of meaninglessness. Have you ever heard the risen Lord call your name? You know, he doesn't just rise from the dead and ride off into the sunset. He calls your name. Hear that, turn toward him, changes your whole perspective. What in the world does it mean? What in the world does it mean that the risen Lord of the dead, Lord risen from the dead, the Lord of the living and the dead, who's risen from the dead, what does it mean that he calls your name? He knows your name. Well, it means that you and I have personal relationship access out of sheer grace to a personal, all-powerful Lord. It means that we get to see this Lord work. It means that I, as a pastor, got to marry uh, this one couple whom I'll call in this sermon, Sam and Sally. And Sam had uh, been to prison. He'd had a drug addiction problem. And Sally had come out of a long-term abusive relationship. But Jesus, the risen Lord, knows their name. And through years of battle, the risen one came through for them. Big time. They were both delivered from travail. They were both uh, given the strength, divine strength, to fight for for their deliverance through their freedom to their places of freedom and liberation from their abuse and addiction they met they fell in love they married as two people i sat with in my office who so clearly were graced by god for each other uh, that they were so clearly graced by god for each other that being with them was like being with the risen jesus because there was no other way to explain why these two people would still be standing or still be around or still even uh, love, try to love, let alone live, right? There's only one way these two people would even still be alive and living and, and breathing, and that's that the risen Lord knows their names. Sam, this big gas well driller and motorcycle rider and man of the sweet spirit and, and depth. Sally, much smaller in stature, but no less mighty and winsomely feisty. Their match truly made in heaven. Truly made in heaven. But life, as you know, can take terrible turns. Our humanity is so relentlessly vulnerable. And so we can get one of those shocking phone calls, like the one I received like the one I received just a few weeks ago. When I found out that Sam, who just a year and a half ago, I'd married to Sally, married him and Sally, 
that Sam had perished tragically in a garage fire. I couldn't believe it. I couldn't believe it. Suddenly Sam was gone. No more Sam and Sally. That kind of news uh, is its own kind of thick darkness that blankets you and disorients you. Like you're in a stupor. It's hideous, awful, terrible. Sally's parents and I know her parents well, and we called it what it was, an inexplicable tragedy, shocking, hideous, leaving a sickening sadness. We got together in the aftermath of losing Sam, and we sat together. We talked about and shared how inexplicably, unthinkably, incomprehensibly cruel the loss of Sam was. But that's not all. Because there was more going on as we met. And I have to testify to you, I must testify to you, that there was more going on in that room than our pain. Our pain was present, real, of course. Didn't minimize that. Um, Pain was not erased, but there was something more in that room with us. Something powerful, something beautiful, warm, winsome, holding us together. I recognized it. I recognized him. And once again, just like the whole story of Sam and Sally's life and their relationship, I am left speechless to explain how it could happen. How, in the greatest grief you could possibly imagine, how could there be this remarkable, loving, sweet, strong presence that let us grieve, held us close, rooted us in hope and gratefulness and some kind of inexplicable loving power. Well, I can explain that by saying three words. He is risen. And even better, the one who is risen, he knows our name. May it be so for you. Happy Easter. Glory to God. Amen.